Father, we do thank you for the marvellous presence of your Holy Spirit with us tonight. Father, we would pray that each one of us may be filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, that we should be in fellowship with you and in tune with what you are saying to the church today. Father, we thank you for our freedom that we may come and study the Word of God, that we can come here and collect to worship you and to praise your name without any interference. And I would ask, Father, in Jesus' name, we should use the freedoms that we have to maximum benefit. Father, we have a world before us who don't know you. Father, how I pray that we should become efficient and effective Christians. Father, that the gospel may get out to solve the needs and solve the problems of this very poor society in which we live. Father, I think of all those people tonight who have all sorts of troubles and problems in their lives. And they don't know that Jesus is alive. Oh, Father, there's no hope. How I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that from this little base here tonight, there may be a base of hope and a base of encouragement to tell the good news that Jesus is alive. He's ever living to make intercession for us. And that he's coming again to establish his kingdom on the earth. Father, bless us tonight and take every word and use it for your own glory. In the name of Jesus. Today we come to the first of a whole series of Bible studies which will comprise a basic course of Bible instruction. By the time we finish, and it's going to take several years, there will be 140 talks or thereabouts actually covering most of the basic topics in the Bible. For our convenience, I'm going to split them up into a whole number of series. The first series, for example, will be on the subject of salvation. And in that, we're going to deal with uh, some of the areas that perhaps you've heard about and perhaps have never understood before. For example, I'll be talking about regeneration or the new birth and describing what the new birth really means to every one of us. I'm going to be talking about expiation, about propitiation, which are words that most Christians have heard, but actually uh, most Christians don't understand them. About reconciliation, atonement and words like that. We'll then be going on and doing quite an extensive study of eternal security. And to end the first series, we'll be coming on to two of the techniques of Christian living. That's 1 John 1 9, or how to stay in fellowship with God, and Romans 8 28, which deals with the marvellous principle that everything works together for good if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that's going to be 12 or 14 talks in the first series. After that, we'll come on to series number two, which will be on judgments, um, covering, of course, first of all, the marvellous principle of grace before judgment, and then going on to various types of judgment throughout the Bible. Again, about 14 talks in that series. The third series will be on prophecy, and so we'll go on until actually we have completed most of the basic principles of the Word of God. There will be tapes on the Trinity, there'll be tapes on foreknowledge, there'll be tapes on predestination, and all these other things that it's so important for us to know. The aim of the course, and the aim of every Bible study, is that we should be effective Christians in our own individual lives. And more than that, that actually um, we should be able to study the Word of God and understand the Word of God for ourselves. Once you've got the basic principles, you should be able to build on them and go on to a full knowledge of the Word of God. You know, as I go on in the Christian life, I really have become convinced that the Word of God is the essential ingredient in a Christian life. I believe it's the key ingredient 
that will produce everything that you need and that the world is actually looking for in Christians. Do you know, in Acts chapter 11, it wasn't the Christians themselves who first called themselves Christians. Have you ever read that passage accurately? Actually, the Christians used to be called the followers of the way, or disciples. It was non-Christians living about that pointed at them and said, they're Jesus ones, they're Christians, they're Christ ones. Because in those Christians they could see the principles of Jesus' own life being lived out in front of their very eyes. It's through the Word of God, for example, that you have mature believers. You have believers who are stable who are content, who have peace no matter what is going on in their lives, who actually are able to radiate joy when everyone else is cracking up under the strain. And it's the Word of God that is able to do it, simply because the Word of God reveals how God views the situation. When there's a political crisis, for example, uh, everyone's very concerned about the political crisis. But there's one thing that's certain, God isn't concerned about the political crisis. And once we come to see things from God's viewpoint, we'll find peace descending in our own spiritual lives. And the Word of God itself talks again and again about itself. It's very egocentric, the Word of God. There are lots and lots of scriptures which say constantly, um, study the Word. Study the Word. Be urgent about the Word. Unfortunately, most Christians seem to ignore these passages. Let me quote just a few, may I? And um, as I quote them, just ask yourself, is this really true of me? As I'm actually giving them out. Alright, the first one, of course, very easy. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not poorly or threadbarely, richly dwelling in. Now you know whether it does in your life. So either tick or put a cross by that one in your own life. Next, study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, which is 2 Timothy 2.15. Well, are you a workman approved or are you not a workman approved? That little scripture tells you whether you are or whether you're not. The next one. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Is that true of you? Let me give you one more, and I think this one is uh, perhaps the most emotive for me, and it's found, of course, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. And it just says this, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. And uh, I immediately get a picture of a lamb. Have you ever seen a lamb desiring milk? I don't know how the ewes put up with this, I really don't. It's almost as if there's a fight that goes on. The lamb goes up and almost attacks its mother. It's so urgent about being fed on that milk that uh, the mothers almost get knocked off their feet as the lamb starts attacking. And I think calves do just the same. Uh, there are sufficient mothers in this room to know what happens if your baby happens to miss its milk for one day. It certainly doesn't uh, whimper quietly in a corner. It lets you know and screams the house down. And do you know, 
I have a burden in my heart that Christians would be like that. Oh, that Christians would start screaming out the moment they were taken away from the milk of the word. But it's not generally true today. Do you know why? Because of the last part of 1 Peter 2.2, that ye may grow thereby. Now Satan knows it's through the word of God that you will come into maturity. Unto the measure of the stature of Christ. He knows that that's how you're going to do it. So what does he do? He switches most Christians off from studying the word of God. That's what he does. And unfortunately, most Bible teachers aid him pretty successfully by making the word of God so dry that no one actually wants to enjoy the word. And yet it's essential for each one of us. All right? Every one of us should be so urgent about the word, it should be the greatest thing and the greatest quest in our lives. Let me show you one little passage, shall I, which I love. In Acts and chapter 17, where we've got some non-Christians. And let's see what God says about them. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 10 and 11. Acts 17, 10 and 11. And here you've got Paul and Silas, and they've been thrown out of... Thessalonica, and they come along to a place called Berea, you'll find it in the scripture, and in verse 10, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews, these were more noble, do you see what it says there, these were more noble than those in uh, Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. And here, God is saying, these Bereans are more honourable than the other Christians, or than the other Jews that were living in Greece. Why? Because, notice verse 11, with all readiness of mind, and in Greek it means running out to get it. You rush out, you hear the word of God's coming, and you all rush forward because you're so keen to get the word of God. And these Bereans were proving themselves noble because they were rushing out and searching with their minds. To search means to look into, to sift through, to actually to dissect the word of God and to balance it up. And that should be true of every Christian. Christians should be able to say, yes, I've got a readiness of mind, and daily I sift the scripture. But unfortunately, it's not generally true. One of the aims of this Bible course is to ha perhaps bring the word of God alive, so that people may get a, a bit of a hunger and a bit of a thirst to understand the word of truth. All right, now let's introduce it, shall we? Here it is, the Bible. We have a phrase for this. We call these 66 books which are gathered together into this one book, the canon of scripture. It's C-A-N-O-N, C-A-N-O-N. And the word canon has been used for centuries about the word of God. All right? Actually, it comes from a Greek word, and the Greek word K-A-N-O-N has a very specific meaning. The Greek word canon was used of a straight edge used in building in the ancient world. And to make sure that the builders were building their walls straight and upright, you used to have this thing called a cannon. 
and uh, they used to start building and every now and again the surveyor used to come along and hold his cannon up against it and he used to say you've got to come out a bit it's sloping in a bit you've got to move up onto this rule that's what it meant it was a straight edge to show whether a wall was being built straight weavers also used them because if they were perhaps weaving a carpet or a garment obviously if the strands didn't go straight you used to have a carpet that bowed on one side which wasn't really a very good carpet and so they used to use a cannon to lay across the wall to check that it was going straight why then is the word of God called the canon of scripture because it's the straight edge against which we can see how we're going Today it would be equivalent of a plumb line or a spirit level. Alright, now those carpenters among us know full well what a spirit level is used for. You lay it along when you've done some work and the bubble's supposed to be in the middle and then you know it's dead straight. And the word of God is just like that. In other words, we may have certain ideas inside of us. What we have to do is take the canon of scripture and we lay alongside it and we say now there's a discrepancy. I seem to be veering off at an angle. And that will tell us how to get back onto the true and onto the straight. Now that's what it's all about. I found this time and time again in my own experience. You see, having a, had a non-Christian education and having been uh, a person with humanist ideas before I was saved, many of my ideas were just not God's point of view. And what I've had to do is I've searched through scripture, I've suddenly come against passages that contradict with what I thought. And what I've had to do is not try and bend the canon round to suit my ideas, as you'll find some Christians trying to do. They explain away that verse, or they forget that verse, or they say that verse isn't really in there, and so on. What I've had to do is to say, now, Father, if that's what you say about it, I must be wrong. All right? And that's what it's for. Now, we live in a day when, I tell you, you whatever you want to believe in, you can believe it. You can find a preacher to suit your own ideas in this, this day and age. You really can. There are so many men travelling around the country, and many of them lovely born-again Christians, who are saying things that just do not fit in with the Word of God. Now, it's essential that we use the canon and use it effectively, and know it, so that we can actually judge whether these things that are being said are true or not. Do you know there are gimmicks going round? People getting caught up with gimmicks, they last for about two years. Now, if you get caught up with a gimmick, it's two years of your life wasted when you could have been effective for Jesus, and you'll never get it back. Let me show you a passage where Paul uses the word canon. If you turn with me to Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 16, we actually have the word translated rule, R-U-L-E. In Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 16. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16. Now here, uh, he's, he's already said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And these Galatians had actually um, had men coming in who preached all sorts of things. All sorts of doctrines had come out in the midst. And these Galatians were saying, Oh, he must be right. This person must be right. That person must be right. The other person must be right. So Paul has to write to them, and he has to say, Now look, here is the truth. One of the things that was being said in the Galatian church was that to be a born-again Christian, you had to be circumcised. So many of them were getting circumcised. So Paul says, now look, circumcision isn't necessary, not at all. And talking about that, he says in verse 16, 
and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy even upon the Israel of God. Now do you see what he's saying? He's saying what I have said to you is a canon, is a rule by which you can know and judge these men. And if a man comes into your midst and starts talking about circumcision, you just get out the letter that I've written and you'll soon see the truth of the matter and get rid of him. Ignore what he's saying. It's not on. But if he actually matches up to this canon that I've given you, then accept it. And we have to do it today in the fellowship. Some people may come along with all sorts of weird ideas. What we've got to do is say, are these ideas biblically based? Do they match up to the canon or not? And if they don't, forget them. Absolutely. We've got to do the same with prophecy. Just because someone prophesies, it doesn't mean to say it's correct. What we have to do is measure up the prophecy against the canon of Scripture. And we know where we are. Now, there's no doubt and no questions about it at all. All right, now there's the word canon as it was used. Um, all right, verse 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy. Praise the Lord. So there's our basic ruler. Fine. Now that's why we call it the canon of Scripture. Now, to help us in our study, God has used about 22 authors. Well, I call them authors. Actually, there was only one supreme author, and that was God himself who wrote it. But he used 22 men or thereabouts to actually write it out. And they wrote 66 books, according to our Bible. 66 of them, and here they are. And it's very convenient because it means that they're natural chapters within the Word of God. And so a verse can be identified by the man who actually penned it for God. We have a basic division. 39 of the books, that is from Genesis to Malachi, uh, were actually written before Christ came on the scene. And we call those the Old Testament. They were before Christ. The remaining 27 books, from Matthew right through to the book of Revelation, were written after Christ, and we call those the New Testament. Now, that's a very convenient uh, divide between the two. By the way, they are both necessary. If they weren't necessary, God would have obliterated them and removed them. And you'll notice there are almost twice as many books in the Old Testament as there are in the New Testament, which is why I spend twice as long studying the Old Testament as I do the New Testament. Because I believe God's put it there for me. This is the canon of Scripture that I've got to study. And you'll always meet some people who say, oh, I only studied the New Testament. I don't understand the Old Testament. Well, you've rejected two-thirds of the canon of Scripture. No wonder they've got it wrong, you see. Now, we've got to be balanced in our own views as far as the canon is concerned. So there it is. There's another basic divide between the Old and New Testament. One written before Christ, one written after Christ. They're also written in different languages. Now, the Old Testament is written basically in Hebrew. Hebrew is a language which has remained almost unchanged, of course. Now, I say almost or in Hebrew, because there is one passage that is actually not in Hebrew. And that is from Daniel and chapter 2, verse 4, through to Daniel 7 and verse 28. And that's actually written in the Chaldean language, Chaldean. The Chaldeans were a Gentile empire, and those particular chapters deal with Gentile empires. And so what other language would be more fitting to talk about those than Chaldean itself? But the rest is all written in Hebrew. Fine. The New Testament, however, is written in 
a lovely language, a beautiful language. And the language is Koine Greek. K-O-I-N-E Greek. Now why is it called Koine Greek and not just ordinary Greek? Because there are many different types of Greek. This is not classical Greek and it's not modern day Greek. It's what we call New Testament Greek. And the New Testament is actually written in it. Alright? New Testament or Koine Greek. Last century, Christians unfortunately made a bit of a mistake about Koine Greek. Some of them said, because we haven't found any uh, remains in Koine Greek other than the Bible, it must be a specially divinely inspired language which only Jesus and the disciples could speak. And, and what they did, they taught that language to all their converts. Now that's what some of them said. Well, of course, we would laugh, because we know, of course, that Jesus wanted the gospel to get out, and so did the disciples want the gospel to get out. So they certainly wouldn't have spoken in a sort of esoteric language that no one actually understood. They would have spoken in a common language. The reason I bring it up, however, is it demonstrates for me the inconsistency in Bible scholars. Because as soon as some Christians mistakenly said that Koine Greek was a divinely inspired language, the Bible critics came along and said, that's absolute rubbish, they said. It's not going to be long before we find scraps of paper with Koine Greek written on it, and then you'll know that it's not a divinely inspired language. So there were these Bible critics saying, you see, it won't be long before archaeology has found remains of Koine Greek. The trouble is, they didn't say the same about other things. For example, uh, the Bible critics criticised Isaiah 20 mercilessly last century because it's the only mention in the Bible of a certain Assyrian king called Sargon, S-A-R-G-O-N. And they said, there we are, you see. There's absolutely no archaeological record of a king called Sargon. So just proves how wrong the Bible is. You see, the Bible's full of inaccuracies, and there's one of them. The Christians, of course, could have said, oh no, soon we'll find archaeological remains that will prove Sargon. But you see, it was a different rule then. They also did it about the Hittite Empire. I'm always amused by this, because history, uh, before about 1916, actually said that the Hittite Empire was a small hill tribe group of people. Whereas the Bible said, actually, it was an empire quite as big as the Egyptian Empire. Oh no, said the Bible critics, there we are, the Bible's wrong again. And the 1909 edition of Encyclopedia Britannica actually says, the Hittites are a small hill tribe. There it is. What's the truth today? Well, the truth is today we found more tablets on Sargon than any other Assyrian king. I'm sure God arranged that specifically, praise God. And also from 1916 onwards, with men like Rinkler and Horonsky and others, we found more tablets on the Hittites than any other empire as well. Now, that's the wisdom of God. But the Christians were quite wrong, too, because we've also found a huge number of Koine Greek papyri. What, what's papyri? Let me just define that before we begin. Papyri is the plural word for papyrus. And papyrus was the type of paper they used to write on in those days. It was made from papyrus reeds which grew along the banks of the River Nile. And you soaked the pith and you put it in strips. And it made this very enduring and hard-wearing paper. And they used to write in it. Uh, the inks were so powerful that actually we can still read the writing. 
was on. And God arranged it like that, by the way, praise the Lord. He really did invent that type of ink that would last 2,000 years so that we can read their scriptures. All right? So when we talk about papyri, we're talking about scraps of paper with writing on. And one of the major finds of papyri was found at a place called Oxyrhynchus, and I better spell that for people. O-X-Y-R-H-Y-N-C-H-U-S. Oxyrhynchus, that's on the west bank of the Nile in Upper Egypt. And the British were in this area at the time, and they were looking for treasure. They were looking for any tomb, Egyptian tomb, to find art, uh, valuable art treasures, gold and silver, death masks, goodness knows what else. That's what they wanted. And two of the men who were searching from Oxford were Dr. Grenville, G-R-E-N-F-E-L-L, and a Dr. Hunt, who were at Oxyrhynchus. And they were searching around. Now, they came across one tomb, which was actually a recent tomb. By recent, I mean 2nd or 3rd century A.D. And, of course, fairly excited, looking for treasure. So they broke into the tomb... And much to their amazement, instead of gold and silver trinkets all the way round, they actually found, lying about on the floor, 2,000 stuffed, mummified crocodiles. It wasn't unusual particularly. Uh, it was fairly common around that this should be so. But it was very inconvenient, because it probably meant that the next chamber in would have the treasures that they were looking for. So what did they have to do? They had to t get rid of the 2,000 crocs. They had to take them out. So the natives were uh, put into action, and they started carrying these crocodiles out. Actually, for us as Bible scholars, the real treasure wasn't found next door, although they did go on to find treasure there. It was inside the crocodiles. And it didn't come to light until one of the natives stumbled, dropped one of the crocodiles, and actually the crocodile split open, and out fell what it was stuffed with. And it wasn't horsehair or anything like that. It was stuffed with papyri, with writing on. And it turned out that the 2,000 crocodiles actually contained a complete library written in the 2nd or 3rd centuries AD in Koine Greek. A whole library. 2,000 stuffed crocodiles, some of the greatest finds that you could, you could want from Egypt. 2,000 stuffed crocodiles. And uh, when these were analysed, they found plays, Greek plays, that had been missing. You know, we'd, we'd heard of them, but we hadn't actually had copies of them around. And they found them complete, intact. They found legal agreements. They found little notes written by children to one another. Little notes written by their parents to them. They found shopping lists and goodness knows what else. Do you know they found fragments of the New Testament, including nearly the whole of the Gospel of Matthew? written in Koine Greek. But for us, the greatest find of all was the full grammar, or syntax as we call it, of Koine Greek. The full written understanding of how their sentences were constructed. Now, what this has meant, as far as we are concerned, is this. That actually now we have a full understanding, not, of, not only of the full syntax of the New Testament, but we have an understanding of how certain words were used. When I come to talk on the inspiration of the Bible, I will actually tell you some of the words that we never understood before, and that now we understand very plainly. And so, revealed before our eyes was Koine Greek, and what a language it was. If God could have uh, chosen a language 
to give his revelation in. This was his choosing, very definitely. For this is one of the most accurate languages that has ever existed anywhere in the whole world. It's tremendously accurate. Uh, English fades into insignificance when compared to Koine Greek. Now, why? Why was Koine Greek so accurate? And to see why it was so accurate, I'm going to just fleetingly deal with its history. Because we come now to the period of around 350 BC, the time of Alexander the Great. There was a man called Philip II who was king of Macedonia. He uh, fell in love with a red-haired princess called Olympias, who actually was the princess of the neighbouring state called Epirus. And from that union, one of the world's greatest geniuses was born, a man called Alexander the Great. And he was a genius in his own right. Uh, he was trained by Aristotle, and by the age of 16, and, and he deserved this, by the way, by the age of 16, he'd become a general in his father's army. But Greece at that time was split up into many independent city-states. There were lots of them around. Macedonia, we've mentioned. There was Epirus. There was Thebes. There was Attica. There was Boeotia. There was Arcadia. There was Archaea. There was Sparta, and many, many others all the way around. These were all independent, they had their own foreign policy, and the worst thing was they all spoke a different dialect of Greek. The, the most wonderful dialect was called Attic Greek, spoken by the Athenians. It was flowing and intellectual. The most primitive was Doric Greek, which was spoken by the Spartans. Uh, some of it just moans and grunts and, and odd noises and hisses and things as they came out. Now, you had a complete diversity. By the time Alexander was 20, <clears throat> his father had actually managed to do quite a lot of unification. But unfortunately, his father was then assassinated, and the whole thing fell apart. Well, Philip, um, Alexander, Philip's son, was determined that he was going to unite Greece. His purpose was that he was going to get his own back on the Persians. The Persians have ruled for centuries, and they'd really done great damage in Greece, and he was determined to get his own back. So the first thing he did, he marched into Epirus and said, Now look, I'm king of Epirus too. My mother was princess of Epirus, and so I'm king of Epirus. And they said, OK. And then he spread right the way down through Thebes and through all the other places, and he managed to actually unify them into a viable mass called Greece. So he then developed an army, and it was then that the problems began. Because as soon as the army got together, they suddenly realised they all spoke a slightly different dialect. And if you were going to defeat the Persians, it was no good all speaking a slightly different dialect. When an order was given, you had to obey instantly and accurately. And they couldn't do it, and especially the Spartans couldn't do it. No one could produce the sounds that they produced. So Alexander and his generals decided that there had to be a common Greek language, or in Greek, a Koine Greek language. And Koine Greek was the result. It was a common Greek to be spoken by everyone. Its aim was accuracy, so that the army could respond instantly to orders. For example, when he said fire, he didn't just want a haphazard answer to that order, he wanted them all to do the same thing. And in Koine Greek, you can say the word fire and you know instantly, one, whether you should fire once, just from the form of the word, two, whether you can fire when you want to, or three, whether you should go on firing. 
It's all in one word. You don't have to give a sentence. You just say, fire! And everyone knows. And that was the language that was used. Using that language and using his genius, he conquered the whole of Anatolia, which is present-day Turkey, right down through the Middle East, including Palestine, into Egypt, and took Egypt. Uh, Alexandria, by the way, is named after him. Right through Persia, up into Afghanistan, conquered the whole of India. Now that's an achievement. And right up even into Tibet and China. That's what Alexander the, did, the, the, the uh, Great actually did. And do you know he died at the age of 33, having conquered the world. And not because he was exhausted either. He died after a prolonged banquet with plenty to drink, and he died of overdrinking at the age of 33. God really used it, because everywhere Alexander went, he insisted they spoke his language. So he wouldn't speak to them in their Indian and Urdu dialects. He wouldn't. He said, no, no. If, you're, if you want to talk to me, you've got to learn a common language. And the only common language I know is Koine. And so they started learning Koine. And actually, by the time of Alexander's demise, most of the then uh, civilized world spoke Koine Greek. And at the time of Jesus, they still did, and until the 6th century afterwards. Astounding. Such was the success of Koine Greek. And of course Jesus used it. Because, as soon as they preached the gospel and wrote the Bible out, everyone from India right over to Macedonia could understand, and down in Egypt, they could all understand it. And the gospel spread like wildfire through those regions. It slowed down a bit when it got to the borders, where new languages came in. But God had prepared just the medium to get the gospel out. And so these Christians who believed it was a divinely inspired language were absolutely wrong, as wrong as they could be wrong. God had made sure that it was going to be the common language of the day. Now that's planning, and God made sure he used it. And Koine Greek then came down in its accuracy into the New Testament scriptures. So that when we come to the New Testament scriptures, though ours, ours our version, our King James, is in inaccurate English, the Greek is still available. And if you don't understand the passage, you just go to the Greek. Because you'll understand it as soon as you've looked at it. So accurate a language is it. To prove the accuracy, I'm going to take just one little example. Now there's a potted history of Koine Greek. I hope I haven't rushed too much. But I'm going to take um, <clears throat> just one little word. And I think we'll see just how accurate Koine Greek is. And I'm going to take the little word if. I-F for those of you that can't spell it. <laughs> the little word, if. Now, believe it or not, if has at least four meanings. Let me give them, and I call these case one, case two, case three, and case four. The first one is if and it is. If and it is. In other words, there's no doubt about it, it's if and it's definitely so. Number two, if and it's not. Number three, if Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. And the last one, I think, is sarcastic. Number four, if I wish you would, but you're not, or you probably won't. And even in English, there are the four meanings. But unfortunately, in English, it's not always clear which of the four it is. Let me give a few sentences in English to show each one, and you'll see how they actually work. Let's take uh, number one, shall we? All right, if and it is. Now, you imagine a harassed housewife with children who are all messing about, and she turns around and she says, 
If you're their father, do something. She's not expressing a doubt about the fact that he is their father. She's actually saying, if and you are their father, so do something. Uh, English is so inaccurate, I suppose that's caused a lot of trouble between parents before now. <laughs> but you, it's a common phrase, isn't it? If you're their father, do something. Now, I'm noticing some of the wives are going slightly red at this moment. You see, they probably said that to their husbands themselves and the children are being obstreperous. Now that is if and it is. It's certainly not if perhaps you are, perhaps you're not. If and you definitely are. Let's have a number two, if and you're not. If I were you, I'd... Ten, 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 ten. If, and of course I'm not you. And I always say, well, you're not me. Just in case they have misunderstood which if it is. There we are. Okay, now that's, that's the third, uh, the second. Number three, if, perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. All right, what's an example of that? Well, that's the common one, isn't it? That's the one that's very easy. Um, if you keep on doing that, there's going to be trouble. If perhaps you will, perhaps you won't, I'm ready. There we are, that's what it means. Now that's number three. Number four, I've heard so many teachers say this to fourth years. If you'd work harder, we'd get some results. If you're not, but I wish you were, but you probably won't. There we are. Now that's the four types. Now, of course, for most English sentences, an if isn't plain, whether it's one, two, three, or four. You've, all you've got to go on is this little word, if, and the meaning of the sentence. And when you come to the New Testament, when you come to an if, it's not clear in English. But in the Greek, it's not just the word if that counts. It's the verb that follows it that also counts. In English, we have tenses in verbs. In Greek, you don't just have tenses. You have what's called a mood and a voice. I'm not going into detail about that. But if you take the moods, for example, there are three main moods. There's the indicative mood, which is the mood of reality. And if you say something in indicative mood, it really is like that. You see, Jesus died. Indicative mood, he really did. Subjunctive mood is the mood of potentiality. Perhaps, perhaps not. That's it. And that's the verb, not the, the word if, it's the verb afterwards. And the last one is optative mood, and that's the mood of wishfulness. And that's number four. So then you get the, the little word if, and all you have to do is check up the mood of the verb afterwards, and you know which if it is. It's as easy as that, or as difficult as that, depending upon what you want. Let's, for example, number four, if perhaps you would, perhaps, uh, sorry, Number four, which is, you're not, but I wish you were, is actually the word if followed by the optative mood of the verb. Now, there, that shows a bit of the syntax of the Greek and how we work it out. Anyway, let me give you some examples. Shall, shall I go through some in the New Testament? I think it's a good idea. Uh, let's start, first of all, with Matthew and chapter 4. Matthew and chapter 4, where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. Matthew and chapter 4. Verse 3 and verse 6. Now here's the devil, and the devil, of course, knew perfectly well who Jesus was. So when he comes along to him, verse 3 of Matthew 4, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And that's a number one. If and you are. And in the Greek, Satan is actually saying, I know that you really are the Son of God. That's what he's saying. You find it again in verse 6. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. 
Now, if and it is, or if and you are, could actually be translated as since, or because, or as. Let's have a look at that, verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, Since thou be the Son of God, do so and so. Or, because you're the Son of God, do such and such. Or, as you're the Son of God, do so and so. Now, that's a good translation of it. But that's an if, and it is, very definitely. And that's uh, an obvious one. So Satan actually uh, believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And number two, if and you're not, is found in John 5 and verse 46. John 5 and verse 46. And in the King James here, they haven't translated it as an if. Which is very interesting. But actually in the Greek, it's the word if. Those of you who've got the Revised Standard Version will find an if there. And notice what it says, uh, verse 46. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And in the RSV it says, For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. And they hadn't believed Moses. Well, that's a number two. If and you didn't believe Moses. There we are. And quite rightly, these translators have said, just said, ignored the if, and they've just put the meaning down. For had ye believed Moses? And the implication in that is, and you didn't believe Moses. There it is. That's a negative. That's number two. Number three is our old friend, 1 John 1 9. Don't turn to it, please. 1 John 1 9. For... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins. If, perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. And listen, if you do, you'll be in fellowship with God. If you don't, you'll be out of fellowship with God and God will discipline you. But it's up to you. So are you going to confess your sins or are you not? That's if. What a tragedy that actually John couldn't write if and you will. At that particular point. But it's not. It's if, perhaps you will. Perhaps you won't. Number four, the mood of wishfulness. Now, I want to give you uh, two on this. The first one's found in Acts and chapter 17. Acts and chapter 17. And verse 27. And he's talking about the gospel getting out to all nations of the earth. Acts 17, 27, and he says that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And the if there, if haply they might feel after him, is I wish they would, but at the moment they're not. And that's what it means. Praise God. Uh, one for Christians, and this is sarcasm. Do you know the Bible has sarcasm in it? I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who uh, don't believe that, but it's true. If you turn to 1 Peter in chapter 3, 1 Peter 3 and verse 14, 1 Peter 3 and verse 14, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And the if there is, if, I wish you would, but you're not. And actually, he was getting at the believers he was writing to. There we are. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're not at the moment, but I wish you were. Now, there's an example. Let's now see two examples where an two ifs are used, and they're different. And then I'm going on to a passage which most Christians uh, find very confusing. But a little knowledge of if 
uh, sorts us out on it. All right? So would you turn, please, to John 13 and verse 17. John 13 and verse 17. And Jesus has been talking to them, and he turns to them, and he just says this little phrase, and it's got two ifs in it, in one verse, verse 17. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. There it is. The first if there is a number one. If and you do know them. How did he know that they knew them? Because he'd just been teaching them the things. And he was a very good teacher. So after this Bible study, if I say, if you've heard this Bible study, and you have, then it will be a number one. Blessed are ye if you remember it. Perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. I have no control over that particular one. That's what he's saying. If ye know these things and you do, happy are ye if ye do them. And that choice is open to us today because that second if is a number three. We have such a privilege as far as the word of God is concerned. We have never lived in an age when archaeology and science has been more in favour of the scriptures than today. But most Christians don't bother to find out about it. Do you know, offhand, I can only think of one battle mentioned in the Old Testament that hasn't got archaeological proof behind it. And that's found in Hosea. And by the way, they will find archaeological proof for it before long. Right, now there's that one. Uh, turn for another. This is a, a good one. I like this one. It's one of my favourites. Acts 5, 38 and 39. Acts and chapter 5, 38... And 39. And we have Gamaliel supporting the Christians. And it turns out in the Greek that he happens to be a believer himself. Now in the English you don't know that. But in the Greek you do know it. It's as clear as a bell. And he's standing up and you remember he's saying now be careful. And his words say this, verse 38. Now, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, that's number three. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. If this counsel or work be of men, it will come to naught. Verse 39. But if it be of God, and it's number one there. Now that's clever. Gamaliel uses a number one. If and it is. I believe it is of God, he's saying. And so in his speech, he was actually telling them what he personally believed. If this is of men... And perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. But if it's of God, no, I think it is. Now, it's as clear as a bell. If you read that in English, you wouldn't know. But in Greek, it's as clear as a bell. And Gamaliel will be in heaven on the basis of one if in Acts chapter 5. Praise God, because he believed it himself. Now, there you've got little examples. Now, in the English is inaccurate. The Greek's very accurate. I want to <coughs> turn to a passage which has caused... Christians, a great deal of trouble. And it's a passage which is always quoted by people who believe that Christians can lose their salvation. And it's got an if stuck in the middle. And of course, they naturally assume it's a number three. If, perhaps you will, and perhaps you won't. Let's just turn to the passage and have a look. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Uh, 22 and 23, actually. 
Now, could I just tell you, there's a full stop which is missed out in the King James. Do you see the phrase, in the body of his flesh through death? There should be a full stop there. In the body of his flesh through death. And the new sentence begins with the word to. It should be a capital T there. Because this is his purpose. Now notice what it says. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled and so on. And these people come along and say, there you are, you see. If you continue in the faith, you'll be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable. But if you don't, you won't. They naturally assume it's a number three. <laughs> I've got news for them. It's not a number three. Praise the Lord. If it's a number three, he's expressing doubt about whether they're going to be presented holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. But it's not a number three. It's a number one. If and you will. Praise the Lord. And to show you exactly the same construction, I'm going to turn to two other passages in the same book so that we can see how Paul actually uses it. But turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Colossians 3 and verse 1. If ye then be arisen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now, which if is that? It's a number one. Obviously, it's a number one. And not many Bible scholars would say that's a number three, if perhaps you are and perhaps you're not. It's obviously a number one. And we could translate it instead of if, because or since, or as. Let's put those words in. Since ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Isn't that what it means? Yes, it is. Or because ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Correct. Or as ye then be risen with Christ, seek, and so on. Now, there's no doubt expressed there by that if. That if is, yes, you are. And his whole argument is, because you are, this is how you should be living. Go up to uh, Colossians 2 verse 20. It's exactly the same construction in the Greek. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? And the if there is the same as in chapter 3 verse 1. If and you are. Wherefore, because ye be dead with Christ, from the rudiments of the world. Or, wherefore, since ye, ye be dead with Christ, or, as you're dead with Christ, why do you think you're still living under the old rules of the world? Now, that's the meaning. When you then go back to Colossians, chapter 1, verse 23, it's exactly the same construction. And it changes the whole meaning of the sentence. Because now it reads, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, because you continue in the faith. Or, since you will continue in the faith. The moment, you see, these Colossians have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they've been reconciled with Christ. And having been reconciled, they were going to be presented holy and unblameable and unreproachable. There's no doubt expressed by the if here. In fact, it was supposed to have given them assurance that they would be. The Greek gives them assurance. It's the English that gives the doubt. Now, there's one little passage which is actually sewn up watertight just by a little knowledge of Greek. That is, if with indicative mood following it, if and you will 
It's all tied up and it's assured, as sure as Jesus is alive today. And he is. Indicative mood in the Greek. Now, the reason that I've taken those from one book is to show this, that Paul was a consistent writer. He used the same Greek construction whenever he wanted it to be the same meaning. And that's what you've got here. Now, there's a picture of how accurate Koine Greek is uh, actually for us. And praise God, because we believe, of course, that the Bible is the Word of God, is inerrant, in other words, it contains no inaccuracies, and is the canon by which we must measure ourselves to see if we're going straight. The Greek can certainly be trusted. Praise God. Even the little ifs can be trusted. Uh, next week I'll be dealing with a passage in um, John chapter 8. But could we just turn to the passage and let's just read it and see the if that's in the middle because it leaves us with a choice and the choice is ours even tonight. Ro uh, this is uh, John and chapter 8. John and chapter 8. John and chapter 8. And verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And it's number three. If perhaps you will, and perhaps you won't. And I want to say to us in the fellowship tonight, we've got the same choice. Will we continue in the word of God, or will we not? Will you as an individual continue in the word of God, or will you not? If you do, you'll be his disciple indeed. If you won't, then you'll be a believer, but not a disciple. The word of God is absolutely crucial. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirits of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner, the word is critic, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And God's asking us all, everyone in this room, Will we allow the word of God to be a critic in our thoughts and in the intents of our hearts? If we will, we'll have unity. If we will, we'll have maturity. If we will, we'll have stability. We'll have peace in every circumstance. If we won't, we're going to be as miserable as the world really is. The word of God is crucial. Study to show thyself approved, a workman needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Next week, we'll deal with the barrier. Amen.